Yeah, if you're doing the full Vivek, I think that you have to, you, you, there has to be some kind of rule there where it's like you're doing, you need to do at least one uh, main, like mainstream TV. So like, you know, an ABC uh, interview, you need to do at least two uh, podcasts because one of them should be prominent and then one should just be like, why is he showing up here? Uh, and then you need to do like a bunch of just random hits on like different networks, but also maybe with different backgrounds from different places. I wonder if they swap out the backgrounds just so that it won't look the same when you're going through all of them. Uh, but yeah, he's basically doing the Ginsburg every every day. It sounds like. Look, I think we could we he should uh, take a page out of uh, you know well known Chicagoland media personality wayne campbell's book and have the the green screen behind him and go to exciting places like delaware where you know where our, our very own president uh hangs his hat these days it's the uh it's the mayor quimby thing you know um just just they just bring in the the background to hide the fact that he's standing in shorts on a, on a beach somewhere um it's 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 the innovative approach to earned earned media where in the world is vivek today <laughs> um Look, I mean, hey, it's it's a method, you know, and if you don't want to waste money on uh, advertising and the like, uh, and you're willing to spend basically all day just talking about yourself and your opinions, uh, then, you know, it's it's an approach. Uh, it's very, uh, it's very online. Uh, it's very millennial. Uh, and it's definitely working. It's definitely working for him. <laughs> that's that's for sure. Uh, let's let's jump right into this, gentlemen. This is Thunderdome. And we finally have an opportunity to talk about an actual debate stage back and forth between these different candidates that we have been discussing with anticipation for quite some time. Uh, you know, we've, we've now, you know, got the actual experience of watching it play out. I have my own thoughts, but uh, before, uh, before we begin, uh, you know, in, in earnest, I just have to say that from my perspective, there's no question who the biggest loser was uh, last night. And that's who, whoever at Young America's Foundation thought it would be a great idea to roll out a climate change question right near the top of of the debate. Uh, you know, nothing about communism, nothing about you know red China, nothing that spoke to kind of Yaf's you know his long uh, storied history as a conservative anti communist organization or the like. Uh, nope, we got the equivalent of Billy and the Snowman from Point Hope, Alaska. Uh, for back in 2007, uh, asking asking about what should be done to defend snow mankind uh, from from their inevitable distinction. Uh, that's that's my takeaway on on uh, the biggest loser. <laughs> so, any anyone uh, any thoughts, John or Dan, on on winners and losers from last night? I think that the sort of the the mainstream media consensus. Um, with regard to Donald Trump being the biggest winner of last night is probably correct. Uh, you know, no, no one on the stage for in any meaningful way really went after him. Uh, it, it, it was, it was almost, it was almost like we were living in a world in which he never existed and was not the president and was not just a candidate, but the leading candidate to be the nominee this time around. So it, it was, a, you know, I think somebody mentioned on Twitter it was a little about, like going to this sort of pre-Trump time machine. And this is a debate that you could have imagined in 2012 or 2008, something like that. So I think that Trump, I think Trump got pretty much 
I think his decision to to not participate, I think, paid off uh, better than I, than I would have expected. And I think a large part of that was the fact that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy sort of ended up as this kind of Trump stand-in. And when you would expect folks like you know, Mike Pence or Chris Christie to train their fire on Trump or actions that the president, then president, had undertaken. Uh, I, I think it became, you know, the focus became one on responding to Ramaswamy. The one place where I'll differ with a lot of the the political talking heads is I, I think that they look at political candidates, and, and I'll say I'm not a I'm not a campaign guy. I'm a you know policy guy, but you know, I've been around DC for a while now, and you know, they talk about these guys and these women, you know, with you know, Governor Haley as though, um, you know, yes, they go in there with a the plan, I'm sure, you know, attack this candidate, make these points. But I, I think a lot of these, these reporters or these pundits completely miss the human element of this, that these are still flesh and blood people. And if somebody is really just up in your face, annoying you, at some point, you're going to respond. And I think that Ramaswamy was a was a pest to most of these candidates last night. I think in a way that probably, uh, yeah, I know that we were sharing a piece that Nate Silver had on his Substack uh, this morning. Uh, and I, I think that Silver's contention is probably correct that for somebody whose name ID was still, you know, only maybe 50% known, pushing pushing himself out there, which has been kind of the, the Ramaswamy strategy, is probably going to help give him some sort of bump, uh, particularly when he was, the Trump stand-in in a on a stage that was before a seemingly pro-Trump audience for the most part. Though I will say that the uh, Nikki Haley just coming down on him like a ton of bricks over Ukraine and the response that she got, which was overwhelmingly positive, that was interesting. I don't know that some of these uh, debates within the party are quite as settled as certain people would would make us think, but. It was a good night for Trump. I thought Ron DeSantis showed fine, and I think coming out there unscathed was good. Uh, you know, small step forward for him. Uh, I think I think Nikki Haley um, has kind of edged out Tim Scott now as the if you want the sort of you know most likely to be electable uh, right of center candidate. I think you could really say after after last night that. The stage can, should consolidate the four next time. An invitation should go out to Trump, Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis, and Nikki Haley, and everyone else is an also ran. As much as I love my guy Doug Burgum and an enormous amount of respect to basically stand for two hours on one leg, and I can't imagine how bad that leg had to be hurting with the uh, torn Achilles. Um, you know, I thought he did he did fine, but he's just not the the talent level for national politics, or at least how we define succession national politics just isn't there uh so it's it's time to consolidate and really begin the real series of debates can i just can i just pick up on one piece of that the opportunity to talk about a lot of that but just the top idea that this was a good night for trump i i don't agree with that i don't think he took a lot of damage i mean it's true you know it's true that they're even like christie's big (laughs) big assault was was really so mild when you think about it in the context of what he promised. He said, whatever you think about the legality, certainly this was not very nice conduct or, you know, whatever, below the office of the presidency. So, like, you know, that was the big the big blow that was landed. There was some, some COVID talk from 
DeSantis. There was some deficit talk from Haley, which was nice to remember that occasionally Republicans still think about spending or at least talk about spending. Um, but, you know, it, so it's so it's true that that there weren't a lot of blows landed on him. I think the explanation for that is is related to something I told you guys on the group text last night, which is the scariest thing about this debate is it is overwhelmingly likely to be the most substantive primary debate on the GOP side that we're going to see because Trump isn't there. I, I predicted uh, last time we talked that he's not going to be able to stay away from more than one of these debates. Um, I, I, I'm still pretty confident in that. I, I think he's kind of tired. So he's, he's old, he's tired. He's, he's sick of playing the hits. You know, he doesn't want to play born to run another time. So, you know, there's a, there's a bigger chance maybe than I let on last time that he'll keep, you know, stay, stay, stay in, 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 you know, Bedminster or, or wherever, Mar-a-Lago, and rather than show up to one of these things or do another softball interview with a, um, you know, disgraced Fox News host. But, you know, I still think I still think it's more likely than not that he's going to come back next time. Mm-hmm. And certainly as the trial calendar starts heating up, you know, we're going to get and 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 as people other than Brett Baer start moderating debates, we're going to get more and more Trump questions. We're going to get a bigger and bigger piece of the debate focused on Trump, whether he's there or not. So the sad and sick truth is that you actually saw a kind of desperation, I'm convinced, last last night for these people to get out policy messages and not take the swings at Trump, both because, A, that's a hard thing to do, take the swings at Trump, even if it's an important one, but B, because, you know, they were getting asked questions about other things and they're not going to have that opportunity in every debate. And certainly, you know, as, as, as like I said, as the calendar heats up, they're going to, they're going to have to spend more and more time talking about Donald Trump. So I think that simple dynamic explains a little bit of what John's talking about. And, and as far as like it being a good night for Trump, I disagree. I mean, Chris and Soltis Anderson had had some some polling before the debate said, you know, everybody thinks it's really important for candidates to show up at these debates. Every GOP voter thinks it's really important for candidates to show up at these debates. Now, I know Trump is evaluated differently than every other person in the in the in the Western arm of the Milky Way galaxy. But, um, you know, even even so, it's still the case that the the you know, the appeal of Trump is Trump. It's like you go you don't you don't you don't like Trump because he debated four years ago and he and he, you know, put on a show four years ago or you remember his performance from last time. You you want more. You know, you like Trump because you want to see Trump do his Trump thing. You go to see Homer get hit in the stomach with a cannonball. You don't go to remember that he once got hit in the stomach with a cannonball. You go to see Gallagher smash watermelons. You don't think, oh, that was the guy who used to smash watermelons. And the same is true for Trump. You want to see him smash those watermelons. And I I think to the extent that he isn't there smashing watermelons, it's going to hurt him. If I could take the middle position here, uh, I think it's both. uh, I think it was a fine night for Trump. I don't think that it helps him any. And I, I think that it actually potentially could hurt him. And the reason is, look, you, the word that you said in there that was most important was tired. Um, he he actually seemed tired in the Tucker interview. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to watch it, but um, you know he does this counter-programming thing with an interview that had actually been taped, like, I guess, a week ago. Um and the you know they they roll it out there uh at the same time as the beginning of this debate and of course you know because it's on autoplay on on x it gets you know 150 million views or whatever 
which is not actually how many people watched it. Uh, the, you have to be on X in order to watch it. You have to have an account in order to watch it. And not that many people sat there with their phones for, for 45 minutes, uh, you know, watching it that way. That's just not something that happened. Uh, and it didn't really seem to make any news. There wasn't anything particularly uh, breaking out of it, except him doing a Kamala Harris impression. The The thing that I think happens then is you have this kind of diminishing return for counter-programming. Uh, you have to either come up with something more impressive or, or uh, you know, better next time around, which is, a, you know, a month from now on Fox Business at the Reagan Library, uh, uh, or you allow for somebody uh, you know on this stage to start gaining momentum i mean i'm not sure that ron DeSantis would have had as good of a night as he did last night where i feel like he really stabilized things and just turned in a perfectly decent performance one that i think if we did not know about the last couple of months if we hadn't lived through it you might think his campaign's going just fine from that performance uh you know and and obviously you had the lightning rod of vivek which i think you know to nate silver's analysis that you cited John, uh, he certainly has room to grow, uh, given that, you know, most people are learning about it for the first time. I also oh, think that, that I also think that, you know, with Trump on the stage, you know, I think he might have found a way to kind of blunt uh, what Mike Pence uh, was saying without necessarily, you know, falling into a trap. Uh, but the fact that he clearly kind of wanted to avoid that circumstance to me also says that like he doesn't want to deal with any tough questions about that kind of thing with the guy on the stage next to him who used to be his vice president and then you know had people threatening to kill him so you know all that being said i think it makes it, him look small that he wouldn't be on the stage with christie and with pence uh, who both clearly would have gone after him uh, you know pretty hard and uh, i think that he could have you know made for a worse night for desantis uh, and that's something that I think, you know, is all potentially bad for him, but we just don't know it yet because we have to see what the numbers start looking like and shaking out like over the past, uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks. So uh, just uh, resetting kind of things a, a little bit, you know, John, what are your thoughts on the way that this debate played out from a policy perspective? Do you feel like we got a pretty clear idea or a better idea of the differences between some of these people that actually matter? I think to an extent, um, you know, I, th I think the exchange on abortion was, was, I thought was really interesting because I think that um, Pence was telling, I think Republican primary voters, what he absolutely sincerely believes and what a lot of them want to hear. And Nikki Haley was telling people what the pragmatic truth was that the, Unless unless there is a unless we nuke the the filibuster or you know unless a Democratic majority does that uh, for for some other policy reason first you know there there aren't sixty votes for a a national there, there there's more likely to be sixty votes for a a more a less well a less restrictive national abortion policy than there are a more restrictive national abortion policy. Um, you know, you have a couple Republican senators who are are, are pro-choice, and you know, at least in Susan Collins' case, probably the only Republican that's gonna that has really a shot of winning statewide in Maine uh, for for the foreseeable future. Uh, I think that the exchanges on uh, foreign policy in Ukraine were were interesting, um, particularly you know, again Haley going after 
uh, Ramaswamy. I think it's it's interesting. They feel like that uh, the Ramaswamy, while omnipresent, was also probably one of the more vapid uh, participants in the debate. That it was for for a guy that was just you know, labeling, labeling everyone else as career politicians, which again true. He acted exactly like one and just hit that stopping point over and over and over again. Uh, you know, I thought DeSantis was interesting in that he was more dynamic than I expected to be. Again, not not the dynamism of a Trump or an Obama, but uh, it seemed like that the his speech pattern and sort of how he talked about things seemed just a lot more authentic. I think for a lot of the candidates on the stage, and again, it, it's it's unfair to some extent because they were probably being seen by a lot of people watching nationally for the first time. And these are folks that, you know, the three of us and a lot of people listening to this have observed for a number of years now, you know, Tim Scott said the the stuff Tim Scott says, Nikki Haley said the stuff Nikki Haley says. And for some of these people, it's running on playbooks that, you know, I think, you know, when we were texting, you know, texting with you guys last night, um, you know, in some ways, you know, Mike Pence feels like he was built in a laboratory to crush Bill Clinton in 1996. I mean, a lot of that rhetoric is is of that you know generation. But you know, at the same time, like on on, it wasn't clear to me. And I, I think again, it's a it's a it was probably a failure of the moderators how these guys and and women, you know, women in the case of Haley, how they're going to address making life better for people. It becomes, you know, sort of greatest hits of kind of the the Trump base, whether it's weaponization of government. And again, that exists and it's important to deal with. But a lot of the sort of kitchen table issues were left unaddressed. I don't think from what I recall, there was really anything about health care. Uh, there wasn't, you know, you know, I don't remember there being a ton of stuff on jobs other than sort of generic, you know, let's open up American energy, those kind of things. Um so I think it was more substantive than you would have got otherwise. And I think Dan is absolutely correct about that. Uh, but I think that just the, the free for all the, and the, 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 the Ramaswamy kind of act there and, and just having candidates on the stage, like Asa Hutchinson, who didn't need to be there really detracted from being a little more pointed on things. So I, I think we learned a little bit more, but I, I think everyone kind of is who we thought that they were going into this other than, you know, DeSantis started showing, I think, a, a pulse and, you know, and started advancing his own cause for himself for the first time in a number of weeks. Yeah, I, I just on on as a as a matter of like what the policy landscape among the candidate field and also among the GOP voter, if that Fox audience was a reliable proxy for the GOP voter, I think we've we've suggested a couple of the hinted at a couple of the big moments. I'll just expand on them a, a little. I think, um, you know, Haley on abortion was really interesting. I would not be, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not as tight on the demographic splits on this and what the data says now as, as maybe for instance, you Ben are, or, or certainly others are, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if Haley was very calculated on abortion and sees an opening or a path with, with, uh, women voters in, in the GOP primary, especially knowing Trump's problems there. Um, you know, Trump's problems with women are obviously much more pronounced at a general level, like orders of magnitude more pronounced. But, you know, they're, they're there in the GOP primary, you know, primary electorate as well. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that was a very calculated move. But nevertheless, it was refreshing to hear someone who really wasn't lying 
to voters. I mean, you might you might have argued if you're a pro-life voter, you might have argued, well, let's have a more a more, um, you know, uh, uh, constructive case for what she's going to do to deliver on our issues rather than just tell us tough luck. Um, but it, but at the same time, you know, we, we, we talk so much about how, you know, Trumpism as a phenomenon for the last, you know, going on a decade has been a response to sort of being told all this happy horse shit by, you know, GOP candidates um, in, in the last umpteen cycles. And the just sort of um, the frankness on some of these issues, you know, with which he sometimes anyway speaks, you know, is 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 refreshing. Well, here's an example with Haley of someone who was being very frank and and telling a, a big slice of, of voters something that um, they didn't necessarily want to hear. But there's also another angle to it, which is that we've seen in a post row world that the politics and the political will, you know, with now that the dog has, has sort of caught the car, are not what people sort of expected in red states and purple states. Um, and so there's something to that, too, that, that maybe perhaps she wasn't on as dangerous ground as we might have thought, you know, four or five years ago on this question. And then the other big moments, I think, you know, there's, you know, some talk about spending and, and, and entitlements. And that's, again, nice to hear at least Republicans talk about that. It's an interesting vector of attack on Trump. I think people care much more about inflation than they do about deficits or the debt right now. And um, so, you know, there was a surprising kind of paucity of talk on on that as a kitchen table issue. And then, you know, I think right at the top, I guess it was good that he got it out of the way at the top. But I'm, I'm on record saying that I think DeSantis has overestimated the amount that people are still thinking about COVID. I mean, it surprises me as much as anybody else how kind of vaporous that issue turned out to be um now we might get a big you know we might get a big surge with it's whatever the hell back. we bury it's coming back man up, right? yeah so if, I... so if that so if that topic comes back i mean th that those issues will become highly effing salient again so that could change right but uh, but uh, so i thought that was kind of weird and then the one we just sort of touched on but that's worth you know talking about a little bit more is the ukraine stuff which was honest to god the only the only moment of the debate that actually shocked me and you guys know my position is that that the GOP electorate is still pretty hawkish, you know, uh, war fatigue aside and Trumpism aside. I think that the voter base is still very naturally hawkish and that, you know, they believe in a, in a muscular American foreign policy and in, you know, advancing the cause of freedom abroad. I think that that is still a popular thing. But nevertheless, with that audience, the way they responded, sometimes, you know, you get locked into patterns, right? I like this guy. You know, you the storyline of a debate develops. Ramaswamy says a couple things you like uh, early on. He he's an avatar of Trumpism, so you just kind of stick with your guy throughout the debate. But the the audience at least showed a nimbleness and revealed their kind of preferences with that Ukraine stuff and with Haley's attacks on Ramaswamy that I found genuinely surprising and really kind of interesting and in its own way encouraging. Almost almost however you feel on Ukraine. It was refreshing to see an audience be able to make a distinction, right, to be able, you know, to see to see that, you know, sort of voters are not unthinking blobs or, um, you know, they're not they're not locked into sort of permanent um, positions or tribal affinities with with these candidates. They could say, you know, hooray Ramaswamy on American hopelessness and boo Ramaswamy on American isolationism. Well, the, um, so the, I thought and, that was really interesting. Just and just to bolster you on that point, what was interesting to me was 
you know, obviously you don't, you don't want to put too much into the dial sort of thing, but uh, tracking independence during that Haley, uh, you know, series of, of points on foreign policy to Vivek, uh, that played very well for her. Um, and I think that the, uh, you know, just in terms of the dial patterns and everything like that, the, the other thing that I think is kind of interesting about it is that the question to Vivek, if you go back to it, was would you support more aid to Ukraine? And then he starts doing his riff about like, we need to pull everything back and send it to the southern border, which is fine to say if you're doing like a like a TV hit. But it's not something that I think actually works uh, if you want to be taken seriously as a candidate. I mean, the way that I think you are taken seriously as a candidate is you say, I want to end the war in Ukraine and I want to end it on the best possible terms for Ukraine and for the United States, for our European allies. Uh, And I and I, you know, and the fact that Vivek would return to the completely false trope that, oh, my gosh, the money that we're spending in Ukraine is driving Russia further into the arms of China. It's like, okay, Russia's been in the arms of China since 2014 uh, really. And, uh, and, you know, uh, Putin was asking Xi's permission to do the Ukraine war all the way back in the, at the Beijing Olympics in 2022. So it's not like this, this is absurd. Uh, it's not a serious thing to say. And obviously, you know, that was what Haley was kind of hitting him on. What's interesting to me though, is it, if you think about it as kind of the, the lanes, um, you you have uh, people kind of stacking up in these in these uh, in these equivalent lanes where the uh, you know Ramaswamy's presence is uh, you know is very Trump adjacent. Uh, DeSantis is uh, to the more conservative side of that of that Trump adjacent agenda, and then Haley is to the uh, to the establishmenty kind of more moderate side of it. I think on the abortion question. The problem for Haley is that she needs to find a way uh, to make this sound like a win or make her approach sound like a win or a path toward winning as opposed to simply a retreat. And to me, that's what it sounded like in to my ear was sort of like retreat. And what I think that she needs to kind of do is in terms of injecting it is to reaffirm that that, you know, in addition to kind of all the things that she cited, that she will hold the line and that anybody, you know, the reason that we need to win in 2024 as Republicans, uh, I think she should make this argument, is because we don't want the Democrats to do what they want to do to the Supreme Court. That they have gone after the Supreme Court to such a great degree and the and that, you know, if Joe Biden doesn't have to face another electorate, if, if he gets another four years, we have no idea uh, how willing they're going to be to pack the court to impeach a justice, uh, to do the kind of extreme things that they've shown they're willing to do against this court. So if we want this decision to hold and which, and if you're pro-life, you believe that it should, uh, then you need to be prepared to, to defend the court. And that, that is, that's why it's so important to win. It's, it's surprising to me that that never came up as an item among all these other items that they said would remain, uh, you know, uh, uh, headed in a bad direction under, under Biden. And I think, quite uh, you know finally that the the number one issue that was just absent from the stage and maybe we would have had it if we didn't have uh you know uh asa hutchinson up there the economy we needed to have more of a conversation about how this economy has been particularly bad for working americans uh and how 
much uh, the you know w- w- the White House and Joe Biden are lying to us uh, and uh, about the degree to which uh, their policies have impacted uh, us on you know just inflation and on trade and so many other aspects of this. That was the thing that I think was kind of left out, uh, and that these candidates definitely need to talk more about. Uh, going forward, we had a question about UFOs, but we didn't have a, a real serious discussion about about the economy from my perspective. Yeah, I think that, that's right. The, the the other thing that's kind of it's more about a it's more about a mood or a or a perspective than it is about a particular policy question. But the Pence Ramaswamy exchange on kind of you know optimism versus pessimism for America was kind of interesting and even though there's a kind of consensus that ramaswamy took a bunch like you could say okay fine he had a good night from the perspective of all publicity is good publicity name recognition and the, the nate silver um thesis there but you know i think there's also consensus that he took a lot of brickbats and the one that he kind of came out looking at least more in touch you know than than his interlocutor on was that exchange with pence where you know Ramaswamy Pence and some others, but where Ramaswamy says, you know, th- it's not morning in America. This is we're we're running for president at a dark moment. I think that's the zeitgeist, um, and, you know, in in the electorate and frankly in the country. I mean, it is the sort of dark and grimy 1970s vibe again, um, you know, at, at at the present moment. And you know, I as much as I admire Pence's you know optimism and and certainly hope he's right. Um, I think Ramaswamy is has has his finger more on the pulse of the electorate on on that piece of it. And that plays into questions like economic optimism and dynamism and, you know, whether we can make stuff in this country and whether we can outcompete China and whether, you know, our kids lives are going to be better than ours. And all of those questions bear, you know, in that sort of vibe, uh, you know, question of, you know, is it morning in America or our best days behind us? And it's odd because for all of our lives you know all three of us on this podcast the answer to that question on the gop side is always 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 our best days are ahead of us right and this is the first time that it feels like there's both a, a sense in the country that that might not be true and also that that's what you know the the vote the primary voter and like the most popular candidates are kind of running on yeah, I probably this is gonna be probably one of the times where I actually tend a little bit more toward Ramaswamy, but I think that I think DeSantis probably handled it the most artfully in early on in the debate. It might have even been in sort of a kind of quasi-opening statement from him when he said the country is in decline, but you know that it's that it's a choice and it's not something that's set in stone. Um, I, I do think that the the morning in America thing and. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. That was that was '84, right? So I mean, you'd already yeah. had sort of four years of of Reagan at that point. So it's you're talking about a president trying to, you know, I'm sure Joe Biden is going to say everything is working and it's great. I mean, in Reagan's case, things were largely working and you know things were going in a good direction. But um, yeah, I, I think it's I just I, I just keep coming back to Pence. Just feels like a candidate that is is just from a different era, and um, I, I just I just don't see. I did. I liked seeing a little bit more fire. Seeing Mike Pence on the attack in a way that he seems sincerely like he wanted to go after Ramaswamy was like actually kind of fun. This isn't a guy that's just a kind of uh, wrote going to say the right thing that you know the conservative always says, and uh, a, a guy that was you know that's calling somebody a rookie on stage and 
yeah, true. Um, and, and I forgot, I've been, I've been saying Ramaswamy's name all wrong. It's nine 11 truther Vivek Ramaswamy, <laughs> um, which he continued. You know, I, I think that the, and just on the, on the Ramaswamy track, another thing, and, and this still just blows my, blows my mind. So he was the one candidate, I believe that did not have the question posed to him as to what, uh, you know, in passing judgment on how Mike Pence handled, uh, January sixth. Yes, which which was uh was was interesting by the way because he has dodged that question before. He said the I never would have let it got get to that point was what he told Politico. But then of course, like everything else, he didn't explain how. So anyway, continue. So and and I and I do is another side. I appreciated Pence actually pushing uh, the Santis on that, which I think was another actually strong moment from Pence. Um, and I, I I think Christie who I thought was who underwhelmed relative to my expectations for him. I think his answer on that was actually really strong that, you know, Pence was not deserving of or grudging respect. He deserved our ad, admiration for doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. With, with regard to Ramaswamy, I, I can't, um, you know, I saw that there was a reporter that, that spoke to him in the spin room afterward and Ramaswamy had first tried to dodge the question and had this like absolute like word salad of, like this magical thinking that, you know, he was going to deliver this bipartisan compromise for the Republic that was going to have same day voting only and, you know, IDs, but then something else was going to happen and it was all going to end. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, real unicorns and rainbow shit. And, (laughs) you know, I I think that what I want to see going forward is that, yeah, Ramaswamy can, can glibly deliver a line, but it's then what, what's your plan? I mean, you, what what have you? Yeah, sure. You you've set up a couple, you know, businesses that have made you a lot of money. But like, what have you done? Um, I, I think that if I'm one of if I was a guy like that was you know say a Doug Berg, I mean, I just don't think this is the style from what we saw. Turn turn the populist thing back on him, and in a way that if you're not DeSantis either, okay, so yeah, we're gonna have the uh, you know we're gonna have the Harvard Yale kid uh, who's never you know had dirt under his fingernails. You know, again, not that any you know any of us necessarily have, but. sort of turn that populism like yeah this is just another rich guy that's from you know the eastern establishment and he's just telling you what you want to hear but what's he actually going to do for you and i I just think that everyone has kind of and and maybe this is just everyone calibrating to the first debate and seeing how everyone's going to react but i think that's that's where to push ramaswamy because i think that he seems like he's a really smart guy right and but i don't know that how much is there there when it comes to this, this is not his lane. You know, he's a guy that built some you know biotech businesses. He is not a guy that has spent a ton of time in the realms of public policy or politics. And I think that the other candidates on the stage need to play their strengths. And I'm super fascinated to see when Trump goes onto the stage, how does he handle Ramaswamy? Particularly if Ramaswamy gains you know, five or six points right. at the expense of Donald Trump. Well, that's the interesting thing that I didn't, necessarily see coming or or didn't give enough and an, you know analytical attention to is you know Ramaswamy like you know the whole let's attack Ramaswamy thing whether it was because everybody read the uh everybody read the DeSantis super PAC memo or it was because like you said John they just all found him to be a annoying little gnome on stage with them and they just don't like him and so they, they there was this human 
sort of reaction to his presence or some mix of the two, you know, they, they were, you know, there was some value in attacking him as a Trump proxy. And we've been talking, or certainly I have, I'll, I'll cop to it, I've been talking about Ramaswamy almost exclusively as a Trump stalking horse. But that narrative changes at some magic number in the polls, right? There's there because, you know, his he can he can take some plenty of votes from DeSantis, don't get me wrong, but at some point for him to grow, he's going to be taking votes from Donald Trump. And as soon as that happens, the dynamic of the race, you know, really upends itself. Now, there might be a natural limit because the other thing we talk about all the time is how, you know, how hard Trump's floor is, right? In addition to how hard his ceiling is. So, you know, maybe there's some natural limit on Ramaswamy's growth just because that's where he can, that's the only place he can get votes from and they're not budging. But certainly one of the things I, I started thinking about for the first time in earnest as, as I watched last night is, okay, so if, if, if Ramaswamy really does have room to grow and he's going to continue to grow, scramble, scrambles the idea that he's a Trump stalking horse because now he's a Trump competitor. Um, you know, when we thought he had a maybe, you know, low double digit ceiling, then you could say, well, he works, you know, he works as a proxy. He works as a hype man, carries Trump's boombox, you know, that sort of stuff. But, you know, that that's not the case if if he's polling, you know, uh, you know, at double that. Um, and so that'll be really interesting to see. And like you said, how does Trump deal with it? Um, and, you know, I, I don't really I don't really have a good answer for that. I don't I don't really know how that's going to go. I kind of want to see Trump on the stage, look over to, to Vivek and say, look, you keep talking about it. you're going to pardon me. Why do you think I'm guilty? <laughs> You know, <laughs> well, you also you also keep talking about me as the 20, best president of the 21st century. Why are you running against me? <laughs> um, the the interesting uh, sort of ramifications here for the upcoming debate, um, the uh, donor level will shift to 50,000. And uh, you've got to have uh, at least two national polls of three percent or above. Um uh, or early state polling uh, along the lines of this of uh, uh, this one, you know that uh, that gets you to that level. So that means that you're probably seeing a debate without Burgum and without Hutchinson. Uh, at, in terms of Christie, it, you know it could be more about uh, you know the the donors and the poll. He's he just by virtue of name ID and the fact that he's doing well in New Hampshire, he can probably make the next stage. To me. The big question is whether Scott sees his support fall off, because I think that he had overall the worst performance just based on expectation, meaning like nobody expected Asa or, or Bergham to, you know, uh, uh, come out and have some kind of great night. But people, I think, thought that Tim Scott would be somebody who could, you know, catch a little fire, you know, and that kind of thing. To me, the big question for the next one is whether he makes it or not. If you end up with a debate stage that's DeSantis, Ramaswamy, um, you know, uh, uh, Haley, you know, maybe Christie, uh, maybe Pence, just based on, uh, you know, sort of the, I don't know how, I mean, he narrowly made the donor limit, you know, for this one. So he would have to find, you know, another 10,000 people or whatever on top of that, presumably to give him a buck. Um but it's it's going to be interesting because I think you know you're at least down to six, you're potentially down to five, uh, and then does Trump weigh in? Does he actually does he actually join 
the fray uh if if it is that smaller restricted number just even even just out of the entertainment factor for like a cat batting around its food you know in terms of yeah. uh, in terms of play, playing with some of these folks or, or smacking christy down in, in a way that's more satisfying to him than a true social post yeah well i definitely i definitely think that uh christy needs christy can't have another performance like that it's not that he was terrible it's that he had a quiet night he he promised you know including in a number of national media interviews that he was going to unleash, you know, he, you know, hellfire in a, in a debate. He had a fairly subdued night. Uh, and, you know, so I think he can't have a, another performance like that necessarily. And Scott, yeah, Scott's the biggest disappointment on the stage um, for sure. Um, Haley took any kind of um, establishment uh, thunder that Scott might've had. Um, and then, you know, Pence, I think Pence overperformed, um, I hope just from a rhetorical standpoint and from a sort of narrative standpoint that he sticks around because I think whether it's unconscious or conscious, a big part of Trump's calculus in skipping the debate was not wanting to be on stage with Mike Pence. Um, and so if we can get to a point where Trump feels compelled by his own um, attention deficit disorder to to join one of these debates while Pence is still around hanging on, then that could be potentially big time fireworks because we didn't we didn't talk about it in the segment. But, you know, I think that exchange on January 6th and 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 uh, electoral certification goes a lot differently and chaotically differently if Trump is on the stage, because I think Trump will say the thing he'll he'll go full on bitchy moany, um, You know, Mike was mean to me. Uh, Donald Trump on that question. And then every, all hell breaks loose, all the incentives for everybody else are kind of changed. There's probably less wishy-washiness. Um, so I think that'll be really interesting and worth seeing like, can Pence hang on long enough to give us one Pence Trump debate, which could really have some cringy moments in it. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it would be good if Bergen, certainly Hutchinson, I mean, sorry, Asa, but be, the sooner he's gone, the better. That's just, you know, you know, consolidate the, the stage a little bit. Um, Bergam, we, we've talked about it, like him, interesting guy, neat ideas, um, not much of a shot. And, you know, that that establishment lane has maybe room for one person in it, <laughs> you know, maybe not even that many. So if it has, you know, if there's room for for, for one person, uh, it's probably not going to be him. Um, so, yeah. I, I think it is worth noting that it's funny that we talk about Nikki Haley as, a, as an establishment candidate at this point when, you know, she came up in South Carolina politics, right, as a protege of, you know, Mark Sanford is, and is an outsider that how much has, has, the, has Republican politics shifted mm-hmm. uh, since, since the George Bush era when we're talking about her as a establishment candidate or somebody like Tim Scott as an establishment candidate or Mike Pence for that matter who was kind of a, a bit of an insurgent you know, within his sort of stylistic bounds uh, in, in the House. I mean, I think Chris Christie uh, is probably, you know, more of that ilk than anybody else. But I mean, stylistically sounds you know very different than sort of a more you know, traditional, um, you know, Republican circa 2000. But um, I, I do I do think at some point, you know, the these guys, the candidates need to figure out the non-Trumps, how to force Trump to play. Um, because I, I think that I, I agree, Ben, that that 
it, in some ways it was a missed opportunity for Trump, but also like no, no one, no one took the shot. So, you know, I, I think the bet paid off and it could have, it could have gone sideways if, um, you know, if somebody did try, you know, if it became a, like, let's all just beat on Trump uh, night. But, I, you know, if I'm, if I'm Ron DeSantis, I started adding into the, you know, look, we can't have, uh, you know, another election with, uh, uh, you know, Joe Biden just hiding in his basement. And, you know, it sounds like Donald Trump is, is trying to run that same playbook now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one thing that we should uh, uh, that we should probably address before we just uh, wrap things up uh, is, you know, there there has been this this idea floated by a number of different donors that they would really love to see, you know, um, uh, Glenn Youngkin jump into this race, uh, that they would like to see, you know, some kind of, you know, expanding of the of of the options. They were disappointed that people like Sununu and, uh, you know, and for non-Republicans, people like Hogan uh, didn't get in to this race. Um, I actually think that what last night showed is that this field is going to consolidate a lot faster than the last time around. Um, meaning in 2016 when we had so many people and you had some late jump-ins and you had, you know, folks who, uh, you know, frankly, you know, didn't have any business uh, sort of being in there uh, early on to the point that you had to have two debate stages. This to me is a sign that things are going to shrink quicker. Um, Maybe that's silly, but I I just think people aren't going to hang around that long at that single digit level um, and I think that there's going to be even more pressure for them to get out with, you know, these types of, of uh, nights where it's it's clear, look, only a handful of you people are actually even running for president. Uh, and to me, you know, that's that's interesting. Uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens because of it. Uh, but, you know, voters, the shifts in percentage, those things have to come from somewhere. And again, we don't necessarily know who they're going to take from, you know, and. Uh, and it, it probably, you know, it doesn't always work the way that you think, you know, they, there were people in the Fox news, uh, Wisconsin, um, uh, focus group, uh, who this morning were talking about, some of them had gone in leaning toward Haley or leaning toward Vivek, and then they shifted to DeSantis. So do we see that, you know, in actual polling or do we see, you know, something more like the, the, you know, the smallest sort of, of margins actually going in that direction? But either way, I think it's a positive for that uh, shrink for that shrinkage of the field to happen early. It is going to be kind of interesting to see, though, if they're if if the cons- the, the the push because I, I think you're right about the the consolidation bit. It's going to be interesting to see if part of that though is you've got a lot of candidates that are kind of at the end of their political road. Yeah, there's you know there's nowhere else for for Bergham to go. But yeah, it's it's not hard to imagine him and you know the next cabinet something like that. Uh, Hutchinson's at an end. Christie's at an end. Uh, you know, Pence. Sims, yeah, Pence's at an end. Whereas last time, you know, there were people that wanted to build their profile, whether it was Marco. You know, again, Marco and Cruz were both legitimate candidates, uh, but you know that there was there was value in those guys. Rand Paul. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was there was a lot of name building to do, and. The folks that had a runway, but if you're if you're one of those guys this time, the Burghams, the Hutchinsons, um, I mean, I think Christy <laughs> Swami is right that Christy does have a vendetta and it's it's glorious. Um, but do you? I just is there as much reason for those guys to you know Hutchinson and Burgum, you know, are, 
are not going to happen. So those guys really want to want to stick around that long, even if they're if they're able, even if they're able to. Gentlemen, this has been Thunderdome, and it's certainly a fascinating discussion to have uh, the day after this uh, pretty impressive debate from the Republicans. Uh, we we obviously have about a month to go till the next one. And, uh, you know, in that time, we're going to learn a lot more about how people can take advantage of maybe what was coming out of this, uh, how they're going to handle new questions. And I'm sure we're going to see more oppo uh, directed at uh, Vivek <laughs> in particular uh, coming out of this debate. Uh, as always, uh, thank you for listening. Head to thespectator.com to subscribe to our magazine, to all of our podcasts, to our newsletters uh, and the like. For John and Dan, I'm Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more Thunderdome next week to talk more about this crazy election. 